Hello and welcome to Raising Learners, a conversation about supporting your child's learning in school and at home. Throughout this series, we discuss questions like how to build a great relationship with your child's school and teacher, how to keep your child safe online, and how to navigate the sometimes challenging final years of high school. I'm Julie Green from raisingchildren.net.au and I'll be hosting today's episode. I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands where each of us are recording today and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. For me, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Today, we're talking about supporting your primary school child's learning. I'm joined by Hayley Doyle, Principal of Swan Hill Primary School and paediatrician Professor Harriet Hiscock from the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. A warm welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks for having us. Can you tell us about the different ways children learn and how parents might be able to tune into that with their own kids and adapt the way they support their child's learning according to specific learning styles? Hayley, let's start with you. Well, as learners, we tend to lean toward or favour one learning style. So when I mention learning styles, I'm talking about that some children are hands-on learners, some are visual learners. So they'd like to see a drawing, a diagram or some sort of visual prompt. Some are auditory learners. So they like to listen. They'd like to listen to the talker and have something verbally explained to them. And socially, some students or some children uh, like to learn with others and alongside others. So as learners, we tend to lean toward one of those styles more than the other. And how can parents have a discussion around the kind of learner that their child is with their teacher? Well, it's a great idea to have a chat with your child's teacher or educator about their learning style and the sorts of observations that they will have made. And you can be rest assured they will have noticed what sort of style they tend to lean toward in the classroom or in the learning environment. And Chances are you've probably noticed it yourself as a parent in the home. The sort of hands-on learners, they like to pick things up, they like to play with blocks, they like to build, those sorts of things. And in our classrooms, we set them up so that they cater for all of those different styles. Fantastic. And we know that parents absolutely want to know how they can support their children's education and learning from when they're very young. But there's a certain level of mystery often for parents on how children learn at school and how teachers approach teaching and learning. So can you unpack these mysteries for us and tell us what this looks like at primary school, Hayley? Yeah, so in the classroom, particularly in the early years classroom, so prep, foundation, grade one, grade two, often the classrooms are set up with play-based learning and they're set up in a way that caters for those different styles that we mentioned and often they will use a range of those sorts of prompts to assist with the learning. So for example, teachers will often have some sort of visual display that they refer to as they're teaching 
but they'll also incorporate the use of hands-on materials often as well. So you might be able to remember back to when you were in the classroom as well and using counters and things like that, hands-on and visual prompts to help the learning. So what about the role of praise and encouragement in how children learn? Harriet, can you perhaps share some of your knowledge around the role of praise and encouragement? Look, I think this is absolutely invaluable, uh, Julie, to all of us, not just children in, in praising us when we have a go at something so they don't have to get something right or something perfect. Just praising the effort is also acknowledged to be really important here as well. And I think some parents get worried about seeing praise as a bribe, but a bribe is really when you're rewarding behavior, which may not be correct or right behavior that you want. Whereas praise is actually saying, you've done a really good job here, or you've had a go, and that's wonderful. And praise can be just verbal, or it can be things like sticker charts or stamp charts for younger children. But the novelty of those tends to wear off after a couple of weeks. So if you are looking to praise your child, think about that timeline and be quite specific in what you're doing and never remove any rewards or praise that you've given. So if a child does something well and then the next time they do something not so well, don't take away that reward because they've actually earned it in the first place. And how specific does praise need to be, say, in the home environment? Well, certainly the more specific, the more effective. So if you just say, good girl, that actually doesn't mean much to a child. But if you say, good girl, for having a go there, trying to do your maths question or whatever else it might be, I really admired how you sat down and gave it a good go and tried to think out what to do next. So the more specific, the more effective your praise is likely to be in getting that behaviour to happen again the next time around. And Hayley, does the same apply around the use of praise and encouragement at school? Can you give us an example of what kids might respond to in the school setting? Yes, definitely. And I would confirm the same things that Harriet just said in that feedback or the praise needs to be specific and that is of a positive nature and it also should be quite timely. So giving it giving that praise and feedback straight away when you notice your child doing something well or positive. And in our classrooms, we've spent quite a bit of time building the capacity of teachers to make sure that they can give that timely and specific feedback because we know that it actually has a really big impact on a child's ability to learn something. So, for example, in the classroom, our teacher might say, well done in the way that you got your mouth ready for that reading rather than great reading because great reading really isn't telling them what they've done well. So we need to be specific when we're giving that feedback. And we know that children are terrific observers of people around them. So what place does role modelling play in regards to encouraging learning in primary school age kids, Harriet? Oh, again, I think this is really important as parents um, or just adults in a child's life. You can't underestimate the importance of role modelling. If you show curiosity or persistence in a task, that's what they'll learn. And the same with screen time. I think we all spend a lot of time on our screens, particularly at the moment. But just remember, whatever you do, your children are observing and watching you and, and you can act as a role model both in what you say, but also just how you act, so your nonverbal behaviours as well. So it's a big piece of supporting their learning. What about the idea of making learning fun? I mean, how important is that? And do you have any tips for parents on how to facilitate this? 
Hayley. Yes, so definitely we know that children learn best when they are happy and when they're content and relaxed. So we do try to look for learning opportunities that are fun and engaging and often that can be relating it to real life. So in the home, for example, it's a great idea to try and incorporate activities and learning tasks that are related to everyday life and things that students or children really enjoy doing. So it could be cooking together, visits to the zoo, discussions about the books and the movies that you might have shared together. So yeah, taking into account your child's interests where you can and making it fun is really important. I agree. And I think one of the big things too here is our expectations around children. So they have to be fun as, um, you know, Hayley said, to be engaged, but also giving them breaks in their learning, particularly if you're doing schooling from home, which is, you know, been quite challenging in these times for a lot of us and making sure that if they're starting to get agitated or upset or, you know, the, the meltdown's beginning, go and have a break, bit of time outside, bit of activity and then reset again. So those brain breaks are really important for children's learning as well. Mm, There's some great tips there. What are your thoughts around some strategies that really can help children with their learning around sort of daily routine, scheduling, learning to manage their time and, and so on? Can you talk us through how some of those things can really help kids and some suggestions for parents on how to get started? Yeah, well, I'll start. I'm Hayley. I'm sure can add in a few tips as well. <laughs> but uh, again, routines are important. And that's, I think, what children often thrive on really from babies onwards. They thrive on routines. So setting up expectations with your child, maybe drawing out what the day's routine might look like or taking photos of them, what the day's routine, you know, breakfast, and then I start my time with learning and then I have a break and I go outside and do this and then I come back and then we move on to the next subject. So if you're schooling from home, you know, you'll be following perhaps ordering a schedule from the school. So I think putting that routine somewhere where the whole family can see it, like on the fridge is really helpful, but making your child part of that routine and bringing it to life in a way that's either visual or written that they can understand and follow as well. And Hayley, what about in the school environment? How important is a routine in bringing kids along with a day at school? Yeah, routine's really important in the school environment and we have a great deal of routine because we know, like Harriet said, that children really do respond well to knowing what's coming. No surprises, they seem to learn better when they know what is expected and what what is coming in the day. So often those routines are co-constructed or set between the teacher and the children so that they know what's coming and they've had input into that. And that really helps. And keeping the learning short and sharp because we know that children can't be expected to concentrate for too long at a time. So keeping that short and sharp learning. I think that's really valuable and it really raises the role of boundaries, clear boundaries. So Hayley, how do teachers use boundaries and setting expectations to support children's learning? Any handy tips here? Yeah. So we have done quite a bit of work recently on setting achievable goals for children. So making sure that they know what's coming, like I said before, they do respond better if they know what is expected. So setting really 
short and small goals that are achievable in a short period of time uh, is something that teachers try really hard to do. So making it clear to the children what success will look like and that they've had some input in saying what success might look like from the outset so they know what's expected. So then it's much easier for them to experience success in whatever that task might be. And this applies to in the home setting as well. If you're setting out to do something, if they know what's expected, they're more likely to participate and have success. And then rewarding. And in short and sharp sessions, like I said before, concentration span of children, we need to take that into account. So rewarding them often along the journey really does help. Okay, thank you. And Harriet, you've worked with children a lot. Is there anything you'd like to add around rules around behaviour? Oh, look, I think I agree with what Haley has said. I sometimes come across parents who are really a bit worried about setting rules and boundaries and think it might do harm to their child, which, you know, there's absolutely no evidence of that. So an analogy I tend to use is imagine if you put your child threw them into the ocean. They can't see the bottom. They can't see the sides. That would be really terrifying. But if you put them in a pool where they can see the bottom, they can see the steps, they can see the sides, and you've taught them how to swim, they're going to have a really good experience. So don't be afraid to set some boundaries and some expectations and teams because that will actually make your child feel safe and secure and far more likely to get on with their learning. And the other thing I think which is important is actually working out what the expectations are and not expecting too much or maybe too little. And that's where your child's teacher is your absolute guide in this of what you know you should be expecting for your child given their age and their learning style and where they are in their learning as well. So speaking you know, to your child's teacher about that is really important to set the expectations that are achievable and not perhaps to expect too much of your child or sometimes too little. So thinking about an example from the classroom, what might boundaries and expectations look like in a particular learning example? Yeah, so they're usually set at the beginning of a year. We set some boundaries with students. So we spend some time together working out what we all think is acceptable behaviour and the sorts of positive behaviours we want to see throughout the year. So they're co-constructed. Once again, the children have some input into determining what the expectation will be and then they're more likely to follow through and follow those positive behaviours. So that might be done at the start of the year and then also during each lesson or at the beginning of a lesson, the teacher makes it really clear what success is going to look like and then provides that positive reinforcement and positive praise according to what that success criteria might be. So rewarding that positive behaviour and that knowing that the expectations are really clear for everyone from the beginning. What might some of those criteria be, Hayley? Yeah, so in really simple terms, we make sure that the criteria written in a really child-friendly language. So, for example, a success criteria might be, at the end of the lesson, I can pack up my table and put all of my things away. (laughs) Something really simple like that. That might be one of the success criteria and written in a way that children can understand. But one of the 
key things that we're really mindful of in the classroom is not having too many goals that children are trying to achieve. So not having our expectations too high, because if the bar is too high, children will lose interest and they're less likely to follow those positive behaviours that we're looking for. So keeping it short and simple and well understood and rewarding often. Okay, thank you. And of course, it might not be always smooth sailing for children's learning. So what suggestions would you have for parents who might have a concern about their children's learning? Should they wait and see or should they raise it early? Definitely raising early. The earlier, the better. And try and keep the lines of communication uh, with your child's teacher or educator open as much as you can. Definitely, as someone that works in education and has done for, for many years now, I have definitely noticed that children flourish when parents and educators work in partnership and work closely together and that the child actually sees them working well together. So children definitely flourish if you get in and and ask the teacher questions from the beginning, but be willing to go in with an open mind and listen to the perspective of the educator as well. Yeah, work together would be my tip. (laughs) I was going to say, I think, Ali, from a health point of view, don't forget the simple things like getting a child's eyesight checked, um, that's Medicare bulked build in Australia, getting their hearing checked if you're concerned about that. I mean, usually it's all fine, but sometimes children do have problems and they can't actually see what's being written, but they've never told the teacher about that and that's why they're struggling with their some aspects of their learning. I guess the other thing that parents have talked to me about, which they find helpful in addition to what Hayley said of definitely you know, speaking with your child's educator, is sometimes if there's a behavioural issue, particularly in the classroom setting, if the teacher or any support workers keep some sort of diary about what was the behaviour, what happened just before, what seemed to be the trigger, what was done in response to the child's behaviour, what helped, what didn't help. The typical what we call ABC diary, the antecedent, what was happening before, the behaviour and the consequence. And sometimes we can look at those diaries together and just see certain patterns and triggers that lead to their child's, you know, having a meltdown or getting upset. And then you can start to change the environment, talking to the school about what's happening and what might be a way to avoid triggers or to have a spot in the classroom where the child can go to calm down if that's an issue. And what can schools do to respond to concerns? Yeah, well, certainly at our school, we do spend quite a bit of time making sure that We provide lots of different avenues for parents to communicate with their child's teacher. So some parents are busy and they they actually can't get to the actual school when they need to. So certainly phone conversations and even video conferencing now is a platform that sometimes we'll use to keep those lines of communication open with parents. But coming into school other than during COVID times is certainly something that we encourage as well. Coming in and just talking about and asking the question about what you might have noticed at home, ask them what the teacher's noticing at school, and it can give you a lot of insight into how that child is developing and tracking. So definitely don't be scared to ask your child's teacher or educator because, yeah, we should all have an open door for that sort of thing because definitely children benefit 
from that partnership. And what do wellbeing teams at a school do? Wellbeing teams do spend a lot of time talking and learning about children's wellbeing and the best ways to respond to lots of different situations and children's needs. So I know at our school and and many schools would be the same, we spend quite a bit of our professional learning budget on student wellbeing because we know that if a child is happy and content at school, they're more likely to learn. And we know that human beings are complex individuals. (laughs) So we do spend a lot of time at a school learning the latest ways and strategies to deal with all children's different needs. And what else do education departments have to support kids who might need that extra support around their learning? Yeah, so we have psychologists and speech pathologists and other professionals that we can draw upon that work within the department. So if you do notice that your child has some sort of issue that you might have raised with a teacher or an educator and and through those discussions you're not seeing an improvement or, or things aren't perhaps progressing the way you would like, the next protocol is to draw from those services that I mentioned so within the department. So there's avenues that educators certainly can pursue to ensure that your child is catered for at school as best we can. And Harriet, you mentioned vision and hearing testing and so on in the community. Is there any other support out there that might be good for parents to have on their radar if they do have concerns? Yeah, look, certainly as a paediatrician, we'll see quite a few children who come to us during the school years with concerns about their learning and often also their behaviour alongside that. And so we'll do a complete medical history and assessment and we'll look for sort of neurodevelopmental issues. So learning difficulties where the child's got a normal IQ, they're not dumb or stupid, but they have a specific, you know, problem with reading or writing or maths, for example, or children who have might have attention difficulties or children who have might have other sensory issues and social issues as well. So we'll take a history, examine the child, speak to their teacher and try and put together a sort of comprehensive picture to see if there's any other issues um, going on which might be leading into some of the learning difficulties that are popping up at school. And I'd also say the other things that parents can help with is just to get back to the basics. Make sure your child's getting enough sleep. Make sure they're getting out and having some exercise. And I see a lot of children with quite major behavior problems who are spending a lot of times on screens, um, gaming often. (laughs) And when we get them off the screens, actually their behavior really improves. And it's a tough thing for parents to do. And then it's often full of battles to do it. And then I spend some of my time writing up contracts between sort of primary school children and their parents. If I only limit my screen time to X hours per day, then mum and dad will stop nagging me about the state of my bedroom. So we write a contract, get the buy-in from the child, get them off the screens a bit more, and I find the behaviour often improves with that alone. Harriet and Haley, what are your top one or two tips for parents to take away on supporting the learning of their primary school-aged children? So my tip would be to work with your child's educator or teacher. Make sure you work in partnership with them because we know that children flourish when that happens. And my other tip would be to reward children. Often that positive reinforcement really does work. 
and but make sure that the goals are achievable. Thanks, Hayley. Harriet. Uh, great tips. And I think what I would add is what we've talked about, set up your routine and structure and expectations for your child so they're clear on that. And if in doubt and if you're worried, go and ask for help early, including from your child's educator. Don't wait. Look, thank you both so much for lifting the lid on those important points and sharing lots of tips that parents can put into practice straight away. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and tell your friends. For more tips and information about the topics we've covered today, visit raisingchildren.net.au and education.vic.gov.au. I'd also like to acknowledge the Department of Education and Training Victoria for their support of this series. We hope you'll join us again next time.